This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. How does appreciation feel to you? A rising rush of warmth? A building wave of confidence? At Reward Gateway Eden Red, we know appreciation appreciates in value. Starting with people, radiating through companies to transform their performance and productivity. Capture the power of appreciation with our total employee experience platform. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I am excited for this episode. You often tell me that you're a global, a future global leader, and uh, <laughs> we've got two fund managers that want to invest in future global leaders. So I'm excited for you to convince them... <laughs> that you're worth investing in. <laughs> yeah, so luckily the episode is nothing about that, Ren, but it is about global future leaders and where uh, it is our pleasure to welcome back to Equity Mates for the second time, James Abella and Maroon Younes to the studio. Welcome, boys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us back. So James and Maroon, uh, if you remember them, uh, joined us in October last year. They are both co-portfolio managers of Fidelity's Global Future Leaders Fund. And uh, thank you to Fidelity for sponsoring this episode and a reminder that Ren and I are not experts. We're not financial professionals. We're here just learning like you guys, but luckily James and Maroon are experts. So we're going to be unpacking all things uh, global future, leaders, uh, small caps, you name it in this episode. So let's get stuck in. Yeah. Now, James and Maroon, before we get to, uh, I guess, your fund and what you're seeing in markets today, we want to start with a bit of a game. Uh, we're calling it this or that because we're not creative enough to come up with anything better. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll throw out two... Um, Two choices. We want to know which you'd prefer. And I guess we just want to get a sense of your investing style. So, uh, James, why don't we start with you? Passive or active? Well, definitely active for our world. Uh, <laughs> that's the quick answer. But yeah, that I mean, the key reason is just that couple of percent above the index over decades can mean a massive, massive difference. And we see it with people that we admire ourselves. And yeah, the, in, the index is, I guess, a cheaper way to play it. But that extra couple of percent or even, you know, two, three percent a year compounded can make a massive difference to someone's retirement. Uh, Maroon, speaking of people you admire, not sure if either of these are in that camp for you, but uh, Warren Buffett or Kathy Wood? I would definitely have to say Warren Buffett. Why is that? I think he's been able to do um, really good things for a long period of time. Um, he's demonstrated that you know he can he can generate returns through different market cycles, uh, and he's basically been doing it for decades. So he's not a one-trick pony. He's not only proven in you know one certain time period. I think he's sort of withstood the test of time. Now that's an interesting one because Kathy Wood would definitely say she invests in future global leaders. So we'll we'll come <laughs> we'll come back to that one. Uh, but James, yeah. United States 
or the rest of the world? Where would you rather invest? Yeah, we're definitely US. Uh, a lot of it's based on the return on capital of the US market. It's just very strong. It's a very sophisticated market. It's a very high return market. It has a lot of opportunities. So a lot of them, you know, do different states in the US and then just kind of take over the world once they've conquered the US. Um, so, yeah, we find the US incredibly attractive. About 66% of the fund is in the US today. And the rest of the world has, you know, proven to be just more challenging overall, whether it's regulation or return or market structures or management quality or governance, we end up favoring the US overall. All right, Maroon, tough one here. Uh, Bitcoin or gold? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to have to go with gold at this point in time. Um, the lesser of two. Evils. Yeah, look, I, th- I think both started off intending to be currencies and then they've both sort of morphed into effectively being stores of value more than anything else. Yeah. Um, but gold has been, you know, a, a time-tested store of value for 6,000 years, whereas Bitcoin has, has sort of been around for about, you know, 15-odd years. So, um we're yet to sort of see Bitcoin handle crisis um, act as a proper flight to safety in terms of store of value. So we'll have to go through a, a full market cycle with a with a nasty recession, I think, just to sort of see if Bitcoin can prove itself as a as a genuine store of value, uh, you know, or a digital form of gold. And then uh, last one, why don't we open it up to the floor and get both of your thoughts? Uh, for the passive parts of your portfolio, uh, I know you guys are both active managers, but when you're talking passive, equal weighted or market cap weighted indexes? Yeah, we actually go market cap, uh, equal weighted, sorry, equal weighted all the way because for us, even the largest index position in our universe is around 50 basis points, which is really small relative to, say, the Australian market or most other markets in the world. The top 10 tend to dominate, you know, 50, 60%. Um, in our universe, the top 10 is about 3 or 4%. Maybe it's 5 when they get concentrated. So we think absolutes. We think absolutes. So when we have a position, we start at you know, basically 1%, 2%, 3%. Um, things have risen to 4% um, in absolute terms. And yeah, the market weight is just a, you know, it's the index. So we're definitely equal weight favoured. And that's how we sort of see the world um, as well and, and opportunity set. Now, a lot has changed since we last spoke to you in October last year. For those that haven't uh, listened to that episode, are you able to remind us about the Future Leaders Fund, starting with, I guess, defining what is a future leader and what does that mean for your investable universe? Yeah, I mean, basically a future leader for us is um, a, a long-term attractive, um, high quality business. You know, we, we want to invest in businesses that compound over a long period of time. So we, we look for businesses that can can sort of grow, that not necessarily have to be high growth, but, you know, steady sort of growth over a long period of time. Um, they, you know, have good margin, generate lots of free cash, really good um, rates of return. That's a sort of key metric for us. Um, ideally, we want them, you know, to possess good, strong balance sheets so they can withstand different um, stresses and really be run by very capable, you know, managers and, and management teams. So they're the sorts of businesses that we define as future leaders and they're the sorts of businesses that we want to partner up with, you know, over a long period of time. Because there's 4,000 stocks in the universe, 1,000 in our index, and we're looking for the top 1% or 2%. So what Maroon said there, that's what we're trying to look for and we're trying to get to the top one or two percent which is which is a big it's a big step process but um that that's critical now maroon i made i made a joke in the uh in the game at the start that kathy wood would also say she invests in future global leaders and it would be maybe helpful for us to understand how you think differently to kathy wood and maybe juxtapose you know some of your top holdings against some of hers because i i imagine they're they're quite different while she's got 
you know, Zoom, DocuSign, Teladoc and Tesla. What are some of the companies that come to mind when you're thinking future global leaders? I think for us, future leaders you know, can can take place in any industry. They don't necessarily have to be a technology-driven business. You can be a, a, a future leader in a very niche industrial segment, for example. Like, let, let's say you make, like, a very niche sensor that gets used by airlines or gets used by um, OEM manufacturers for cars, etc., and you dominate that industry and you do it really well and you earn really good rates of return and, and generate good margins. So it's not necessarily a technology-driven business. Um, you could be um, innovating in, in, in a, a particular service stream or something like that. So I, I think if you just look at technology and technology-driven businesses, then, then then sort of I think that's sort of where you end up with sort of where Cathy where is. Um, we tend to be a bit broader in, in our definition of, of global future leaders in that they could be dominant businesses. Um, you know, it, it could be a consumer brand, for example. Um, so some of the companies, um, Moncler, for example, um, they do luxury uh, winter wear. So if you've ever uh, heard of Canadian Goose, for example, they're sort of like a higher end version of even Canadian Goose. And, and, and they sell thick bomber jackets for four or five thousand dollars and you know the emerging middle class particularly in asia um uh, and china they go crazy over that because that for them is a, is a symbol of status it's an a symbol that you it's, yeah. it's an aspiration you know you've made it and so for us that's a business that's growing over long term but it's not really doing anything fancy in terms of new you know technology or or, or saving the universe um but it still is a, a global future leader in, in our eyes so i think that's sort of the key difference in terms of of you know how we define it more broadly and i think kathy just sort of looking a lot narrower and a lot more specialized in sort yeah. of the um the technology Tech driven world disruption yeah mm. and, and what we look for we tend to probably place a bit more emphasis i would say on the here and now i think kathy's sort of looking further out 10 years from now um we generally have been avoiding um concept stocks or loss making stocks we actually want businesses that have an existing proven business model and that you know can continue to grow in, in in the future, not just sort of pinning everything on the future and and sort of you know the the, the revolution of the future. I guess it's a novel concept, existing proven proven business models. <laughs> you guys aren't in on the meme stocks, or <laughs> no, no, no meme stocks for us. No. So you just touch on maybe the top ten because that's. Yeah, I mean, our, our, our top 10, like we, we've got top 10 holdings in um, stuff like energy, insurance, Tech. um, technology, uh, consumer. So it really is sort of widespread um, healthcare. We've, we've got a couple of names in healthcare. So it really is sort of widespread. Um, some are sort of household names, some are uh, sort of more B2B players. Um, but it's business but, to business. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> business to business. But, but, but they're all, all very good at what they do and they yeah. all dominate what they mm. do quite well. So we're almost a year since we last spoke and there's no question that plenty has changed uh, over that past 12 months. So how how would you sum up the year that has been? And I guess from the point of view of the top 10 holdings, how have some of those companies held up? How have you been managing the portfolio? Yeah, no, it's a really big change. So the last 12 months, a lot has changed. I guess we could say the last sort of right, the situation now is very different to the last 10 years. So a very significant compounding effect of the current challenges, rising inflation, rising rising interest rates, uh, lower market liquidity, lower valuations, much higher investor scepticism, tighter labour markets, much you know global pressures from higher expectations.
expectations in like ESG, environmental, social governance behaviours within organisation. So it's been a very volatile period for, for the world to just absorb all those concepts in their head and markets. It's been very volatile. So the top 10 actually ha probably hasn't even changed that much. The last 12 months, it really hasn't moved. The companies that we own are still doing quite well. As Maroon mentioned, we've got technology companies, energy companies, consumer companies, um, and some industrials that have done, you know, still done quite well. But all those conditions have put extreme pressure on margins. Um, we can touch on later sort of how we think about the portfolio, but it's really the market structure that you've got to think about because whether the companies that you own can hold all those pressures in their businesses and actually maintain margins actually comes down to the ecosystem that they operate in. And if that ecosystem is highly competitive and it can't hold the margins, there's a lot of profit warnings already coming from Europe and now just starting in America, but Europe in particular um, because of the energy crisis and the cost of living crisis. But as these pressures intensify over the next 12 months, the market structures and ecosystems that companies operate is what you've really got to think about. And that's, I think, where this environment is actually very different to 12 months ago, but you know, it's also very different to what it was over the last decade because rates have gone up significantly. So the sort of hurdles on companies and what they have to sort of yeah jump over uh, in order to make their margins and maintain margins is, is 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 really high compared to what it was 12 months ago. And all those COVID conditions, which was free money and huge government support, a lot of that's gone. So yeah, companies are very much faced with the ecosystem they operate, how much their companies, how much of their product is loved, how much does the businesses that they're supplying to need them, how critical is that application? Um, if it's not mission critical and it's not huge customer love in terms of I need to have this product as an aspiration you know they're under a lot of pressure I guess in broad strokes there's sort of three options that you have as fund managers in a downturn you can uh, go to cash you can sell some positions and go to cash you can turn defensive and you know uh, invest in different positions or go short the market or you can you know I guess hold strong and uh, you know, keep buying more or stick to your original positions. How how have you guys thought about navigating this the last twelve months? And I guess which bucket would you put yourselves in? Um, which bucket? Look, I, it, it's probably a combination of, of all of them. I, I think if you sort of just rely on one or the other, um, you, you're sort of not utilising all the tools. So we do focus predominantly on on quality business models um you know high quality franchises uh, james said you know generally businesses that have good pricing power for example um so that means if it's uh, fears about inflation which we've sort of had uh, these businesses can sort of hold um some of their some of their margin if it's fears around recession again if, you, if you're providing uh, a, a product or service that's necessary for your customers rather than sort of a nice to have then your revenues tend to be stickier so I think if you gravitate towards quality as a starting point, it gives you some of that defensive characteristics that you look for in down markets. And so you're already positioned there without even needing to sort of sell and sort of go defensive anyway, because those businesses themselves um, exhibit some of that inherent defensiveness anyway in their own business model. So that's half, that's half of our portfolio is currently what we consider to be quality. And the rest is other cyclicals, defensives, special situations, value stocks. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so, so I think that was sort of like a key thing for us. The other thing um, that has sort of been uh, really helpful for us is again, sort of you know, going back to inflation and, and inflation fears probably started to surface about twelve months ago. 
because we have a valuation discipline uh, at that point in time, energy was an area probably about 18 months ago that we were attracted to because energy had sort of been left behind. If you sort of remember, you know, there was all sort of the COVID winners and it was stuff like Zoom and DocuSign and Peloton and all those things sort of went crazy. And there was a whole bunch of, you know, I guess old economy areas such as energy, which which had sort of been left behind, yeah. uh, and they didn't get caught up in any any of the, the 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 meme stock mania. So energy was one that we were uh, attracted to uh, because it sort of been left behind, and you know there was really good pockets of value there. And so we started to build up a position in that probably 18 months ago. Uh, and then inflation fears started to pick up maybe 12 months ago, and, and that was positive for inflation. And then, and then you had sort of Russia invading Ukraine and all the sanctions on Russia, you know, um, by the Western world. And Russia is a big um, exporter of energy, and that's sort of given energy another shot in the arm. So we were also sort of, uh, you know, fortuitous to sort of have that energy position there. So we, we haven't really had to do a whole lot. Uh, in terms of like wholesale chopping and changing, I think we've sort of largely stuck to our core, but a part of our core, I think, gives us that inherent protection anyway by by focusing both on quality businesses and also having like a, a robust valuation discipline and, and not paying up for um, the best stories and, and paying whatever multiple the, the, the market is putting on, but rather sort of going back and saying, how much do we think this is worth? It might be a great story, but how much do we think this is worth? And if it's trading, you know, for less than what we think it's worth, then we'll buy in. And if it's trading at, you know, much higher valuation than what we think it's worth, then we'll sort of leave it alone, even if it has the sexiest story out there. If only I was in on the energy trade 12 months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we we bought a stock called Shinier Energy and it was, uh, it actually wasn't making money when we bought it. And the analyst said to us, you know, over the next two years, they're going to release trains as in like a whole, you know, a stream of LNG. Um, and the LNG price here went vertical, um, and that stock has, has gone up, you know, sort of two to three times over the last um, 18 months, and that's been phenomenal. And, you know, I was reading about them recently, and, like, they're exporting a lot of LNG to Europe to try to solve the European gas issues, and um, they've become a critical part of, you know, the solution of that of that now. So, um, yeah, but energy's been, been great. And it, like Maroon said, it was a very forgotten sector, so we thought of it as value, and now it's, yeah, probably more momentum-y, um, but it's still very very cheap as a sector so it's still we're still overweight still still like it so you'll take a value yeah, i'm interested in that comment where you said you, you bought it when it wasn't making any money and um just where that kind of fits into the process of finding and uncovering these gems there's been plenty of businesses over the last 10 years of, who have been telling us that you know they are future leaders putting a lot of spin and, yeah. and now they're trying to tell us that they're all solvent and it's all good so um, yeah. just kind of wondering how you do look through that sort of marketing spin, identify some of the true gems. Yeah, I'll just touch it on. on Chenier is really like looking out two to three years, which was the release of the LNG gas. Uh, Maroon can touch on a lot of the tech ones because we dodged a lot of a lot of trouble in tech, that which was really yeah, cool stuff that was loss making and crazy sort of sales valuations, um, but specifically on on energy and other sort of industrials, which were really cheap. We just looked at what was happening over the next two years. Valuations are very attractive. Analysts were really positive internally. They knew what the outlook was, and we you know, we did move into them, and that was energy and, and some industrials. But yeah, Maroon can sort of talk about the tech ones, which are, there's a lot of sort of dodging, dodging those and not owning them, because a lot of them were, yeah, great stories that traded on sales multiples, um, but we didn't own a lot of them, right? Not yeah. All. 
So, so I, look, I, th I think the key for us is really it comes back to our process, and we, we have a very sort of robust and diligent process that we always follow. Um, and, and, and so we sort of look at um, various different aspects. Um, we look at businesses, you know, through multiple pillars. There's three of them. There's, there's one that's viability, which is effectively more sort of the here and the now, so the margins, the return profiles, you know, how viable is the business. Another pillar is the su sustainability, which is, you know, how sustainable are these going forward? Um, so you could be earning really high margins, today really good returns um, but you see a wall of competition coming on in, in, into your space and so you sort of look out and you go these margins and returns are not sustainable you know five years into the future or it could be the other way around where you're not earning a whole lot now for whatever reason maybe you're, you're um, reinvesting quite a lot right now but you could sort of see that you know those those numbers so the viability is sort of looking more at the here and now sustainability is sort of looking at that profile over the next few years and then credibility really is sort of like our conviction in management teams and, 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 and the accounts and things like that. Yeah. So the process, I think, for us weeds out a lot of a lot of those things because you could be doing something that's super cool today. But again, if it's not if there's no competitive advantage, if there's no sort of unique angle to what you do, that's going to protect you in the future. Um, it's very hard for us to buy in. So, you know, Peloton, for example, yeah, let's say great. Yeah, Peloton. Example. I mean, look, it, it was a novel concept, for example, but ultimately it is um, a hyped up home exercise routine right it is jazzed up with sort of like an ipad and you know you you can do all different sort of biking circuits and and, and all sorts of different things but ultimately it, it is a home workout session so firstly it's very easy to get into right you know lo lots of people have been, have been doing sort of um, home workout sessions whether it's sort of you know aerobics or sort of you know a shadow boxing or or, or anything of, of that nature there's different ways of being able to exercise at home the other thing as well is exercising at home was elevated during covid because you, you couldn't actually go out in a more normalized post-covid world sure there'll be a lot of exercise at home but it's probably not going to be as elevated and as heightened as you know when everyone seven billion people were locked down in their homes pretty much all around the world at, at one point in time so being able to look out and sort of look look at the business model and and, and how they make money and and, and say is there something unique about these guys or can they be competed the way? Can can other, you know, home stationary bike manufacturers get into this market? Absolutely. Can others, you know, generate a lot of hype and a lot of marketing spin around, um, you know, how, how unique their service offering is? Absolutely. And so for us, something like that just didn't look like it was genuinely sustainable going forward. And so I, I think, again, it sort of comes back to the process and, and, and just being able to um, see just how defensible those those sorts of um, business models are yeah so definitely we've seen like yeah those days of sort of storytelling and narratives narratives and momentum clusters that trade on big sales multiples performing well and getting a lot of market support so really high valuations they could raise money overnight um those sort of days you know really are behind us like and what we do as a Marins at a high we look at cash flows, we look at profits, we look at sustainable margins. Can they manage the cycle? Can they access and price debt very reasonably? And we look at all of those really closely. And we looked at a lot of these tech bubble sort of stocks that happened during COVID or work from home COVID bubbles and concept stocks that just didn't make money but sounded really, really good and were you know absolutely booming um, two years ago. Um, and our view is as we move through to 2023, a lot of these pressures that we talked about um, in terms of costs are going to start to flow through so into the consumer, into corporates, into margins. Um, and that's why you need to be, I think, even more diligent today um, 
the normal because this is a very it's it, it's going to be a pretty challenging likely six to 12 months mm. and yeah stories and narratives and little momentum clusters are, are not the things you want to be chasing going back to that peloton example i think if there's one lesson i've taken from 2022 it's that i will never invest in fitness mm. well i didn't i was about to say again but i haven't invested in fitness but peloton and f45 two of the most hyped up stocks of the past few years and uh now we're seeing there's a bit of noise around uh, Facebook's VR fitness experience and they're trying to acquire a company that's a leader in VR fitness and there's a bit of hype that you're starting to see in that community around the, uh, fitness being the use case for VR after gaming. It's going to be like the next big use case. I'm staying away. I've <laughs> learned 2022 has taught yeah. me don't invest in fitness because it's all just fads. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is hard. Like, it's the, the barriers to entry are just so small. Like we look, we looked at Pel- Peloton like twice and we spent like half an hour on it. We looked at it in detail. We debated it amongst ourselves. We looked at the competition and the, the competition came Amazon, a lot of different competitors. Mm. Um, and if the barrier, yeah, the barriers are low, like eventually you will get competed away. So, um, but yeah, fitness has been, and we looked at F45 as well. That was sort of p- pitched to us and we thought, okay, yeah. we'll have a look. And um, yeah, you're right. Fitness has been really tough. Like, and it's globally, globally, fitness has been really tough. Mm. No one's really kind of cracked that market to make it really competitive and make it a sustainable margin. So, not an easy one. If we can just go back to your, um, I guess, your framework for for looking at stocks uh, viability, sustainability, credibility. I really like uh, how succinct that is. And then, so once a company passes those three, I guess threshold tests or, or whatever you mm-hmm. call them. Yeah, it's then it yeah. then uh, you were speaking before Maroon about uh, valuation discipline and uh, only you know energy came up on your screen eighteen months ago because uh, the companies that had passed those three tests were also looking cheap. So I guess the question is, if energy came up on your screen eighteen months ago, and we've seen what happened to energy since. What's the sector that's coming up on your screen today? <laughs> There's probably not a, a sector in general that's that's, that's screening uh, right now. Um, we, we, we are looking for specific things, and I think it's just a function of, I think, where we are in the macro right now. So it's, it's less about the valuation per se, and it's more about just navigating what we think might be, you know, a, a very tricky and, and, and vulnerable window over the next six to 12 months. It all really stems from, I guess, from inflation. Um, and central banks around the world, particularly in the US, you know, they're, they're, they're very firm about sort of um, bringing inflation back under control. And all the recent commentary is that, uh, particularly in the Fed, they're willing to tolerate some economic pain to sort of bring inflation under control. So that sort of brings about two things that, that we're looking for. One is businesses that can protect their, I guess, margins and, and, and profits during inflationary periods. And the second thing is businesses that can be resilient during, uh, you know, soft um, economic times. So they're the things that we're really looking for now as opposed to sort of just looking for something that's necessarily cheap. So I think for us, first and foremost, is finding those characteristics um, or businesses that exhibit those characteristics that we think uh, will be good places to navigate the next sort of six to nine months. And so 
again, a lot of it is very company specific, but I'd, I'd say one area that we did go into probably about six to nine months ago uh, was insurance. Um, we sort of built up a position in insurance and there's a couple of reasons why I think insurance, they operate on their own cycle, which is independent of the economic cycle. Um, so uh, insurers, when they receive, like if you're a property insurer and you go through a flood season, for example, like what we just had, you know, in, uh, along the East Coast last summer, what then insurers do is actually reprice upwards their premiums for the following year to sort of make back some of those losses. So you have these cycles that usually go for about two or three years in each direction in, in, in insurance and, and hardening is sort of when insurance premiums are going up. And we've been sort of seeing that. So you've got premiums that are going up independent of the economic cycle. And insurance is not something, by the way, that you can just stop having just because you're not being paid a bonus, right? Like your house needs to be insured, you know, life insurance. If you're a business, um, you need to have insurance to be able to operate. So if your revenues are down 10%, you're still going to insure your business anyway, because it's, you know, it's just the cost of doing business. So it's very sticky. It's independent of the economic cycle and it's been going up. The other thing about insurers is they collect your money up front. So you think about, you know, you, you, you pay for your home and contents or your car insurance. You pay the premium up front. The company gets that and basically um, they're liable to pay you out at you know, any course over the next 12 months um, if you make a claim. So basically they've received your money up front. They have free reign to do whatever they want with that money for the next 12 months. Uh, 12 months because it's technically a liability for them, a contingent liability. It's unearned income that sits on their balance sheet. And only when that policy, let's say it's 12 months, only when that policy expires that it generally becomes theirs. Now, what they do with that is they usually invest in um, very short-term uh, fixed income securities. So usually like three months or six months or 12 months fixed income securities. Two years ago, three years ago, they were, they were getting very little by way of yields on those investments, right? Because interest rates are quite low. Now, now interest rates are going up, and, and so you know people like insurers who invest in sort of um, short dated fixed income now can earn money on that premium that you pay for them in advance, twelve months in advance. They can earn some extra money on that they weren't earning two years ago. So they've got more money coming in via their premium prices going up they've got more money coming in via their investments and it's a very stick and resilient business uh, and they generate a lot of free cash so that was an area uh, for us that we found quite attractive and we sort of bought a few names in that space and it's 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 actually done quite well for us um over the past sort of six months or so but Outside of that, it's really hard to sort of categorize and say one sector is sort of the one that's, you know, flashing for us that this is sort of where we need to be right now. Super interesting. So, Maroon, you mentioned there sort of the next six to nine months and a um, few of the, the macro headwinds that we're facing into, no doubt, inflation it seems to be a little bit more persistent than the market would, would like. Interest rates looks like they're going to be raised at a rate again that the market is a bit uncomfortable with, fear of recession, plenty going on. What do you guys see as the risks moving forward from a macro point of view? What are you paying closest attention to if you kind of had to choose one or two? Uh, yeah, look, I, th- I think the risks are high and, and, and they're increasing. I think, um, like I said, it all, it all comes down to inflation. I think inflation was the, 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 the uh, or fear of inflation was the first thing that surfaced probably about 12 months ago. Um, interest rates started to, or yields started to pick up on the back of that market, ex- uh, you know, expecting interest rates to go up. Uh, and then central banks have, have been very aggressive in, in pushing up interest rates and, and not only aggressive in their actions, but also aggressive in their wording. Like, you know, what I'm referencing there, uh, there was a Jackson Hole speech a couple of weeks ago by the US Fed, where basically um, uh, 
the chairman said that they're willing to tolerate an increase in unemployment and you know a, a, a softening of the economy to sort of in, uh, achieve um, their inflation objectives. So you've got unemployment at three and a half percent. Who knows what they're willing to tolerate? But you know, five or six percent, um, you know, sounds reasonable um, if you sort of use that language. So they're basically okay with unemployment picking up another you know um 50 from where it is today from three and a half to five uh, and a bit i would say um because they really want to fight inflation um and so i think the best outcome the most ideal outcome is is what's sort of um, often referred to as a soft landing where you raise interest rates high enough that you cool inflation um and then economic growth slows down but it stays positive you know so it goes from say plus four to plus two or plus one but it stays positive and that's that's what's known as a soft landing um the alternative is a hard landing where you raise interest rates so high that actually economic growth turns negative and we enter a recession um and then you know unemployment goes up and corporate bankruptcies go up up and mortgage default rates go up and everything that's nasty goes up and the concerning thing about that is we don't really have a good track record because i think over the last 60 or so years 70 years we've, we've only engineered about two or three if i'm not mistaken soft landings uh, and we've had a whole lot more by way of hard landings and, and, to, and control inflation. to control inflation yeah. and, and there was another stat i sort of read the other day where inflation has never gone above five percent and being tamed without a recession right. and, and you know inflation in the us now is sort of running with an eight handle so if we're able to tame inflation without a recession it'll be the first time i guess of the, the last hundred years so when you look at that and you go the odds are not in our favor of being able to sort of pull this off without you know causing a lot of pain um we may but the, you know the, the odds just just aren't, aren't there so for i think for us that's why um you know things about resilient businesses and businesses that can protect themselves during inflation have been such a prominent feature of what we're looking for over the past um i guess six to 12 months it's it's because like we look out there and we sort of see this looming uh we don't like the look and smell of it mm. and so we're just trying to uh, you know make sure that we get set up from now that if something um sort of breaks i guess in the near future we're sort of set for that rather than sort of scrambling um you know behind the eight ball and 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 and, and trying to get set you know at, at that point in time so yeah. we're, we're, between us i've been talking about the words persistency and consistency so at the moment basically a growth certainty and yield are becoming scarce again so i think there's a premium that's going to come into the market where if you can provide growth certainty and yield then that's going to be okay um but when we think about picking stocks it's all about the persistency the persistency of um of the return profile can you hold it basically and that's what yeah we, we talk about ourselves whenever we buy something new or whenever we're reassessing the portfolio um we're thinking about those words persistency consistency visibility um and that's really where yeah that sort of strength and a, a big chunk of the portfolio in half its quality um and then the rest of them we want to make sure they still have those attributes that maroon mentioned before when we talk about macro we often talk about like we talk, we talk about it globally, and that and that makes sense because the economy is so interconnected and globalized. And you know, we all look to Jackson Hole, and we all look to the U.S. Federal Reserve and and what they're saying and what they're doing. But um, we are also seeing, I guess, uh, some more localized issues. We're seeing Europe face into an energy crisis. We're seeing China mm-hmm. face into a, a property and mortgage debt crisis. Um, 
on a, I guess, regional level or, or even on a like a sector by sector, industry by industry level, is there anything that you've just put a, any countries or any industries that you've just put a black line through and you said for the next 18 months, we're not touching this, we'll come back to it when things start to improve? I would say less country and, and more um, specific areas. So I, I, I think, you know, uh, yields going up, rates going up, that's, that's putting pressure on valuation. So you don't want exposure to businesses where a lot of the valuation resides in the future. So, mm-hmm. you know, what's known as long duration. So anything that's loss making or anything that's super expensive, you know, 50, 60, 70 times PE, um, we're trying to stay away from because they're very, very sensitive to tiny changes, you know, tiny increases in interest rates. Yeah. Um, that You know, they, they, they've come off a long way over the past six or nine months, but I don't think we're completely out of the woods yet. Um, in terms of you know vulnerability to interest rates, so we're really trying to stay clear um, from that. Um, we're trying to stay clear, from, you know, as James said earlier about businesses that are sort of in like very um, uh, super competitive or commoditized industries where they have no pricing power, for example, because you know we we sort of see inflation, we see the pressures that are that are going to um, businesses are going to have to face on their margins, and if you're one of you know. 10,000 different um, Me Too providers that do the exact same thing, then they're not going to be able to um, put through pricing. Um, we want businesses that are very unique in what they do and that can sort of get um, inflation protection. Um, and then we're staying away, I guess, also from businesses that are heavily uh, leveraged. Um, a, because if we do enter a recession, having a lot of debt on the balance sheet decreases your chances of surviving. Uh, and B, um, you know, increased funding costs, and, and and these businesses that have a lot of debt are going to face um, you know pressures to their to their bottom line via via increased um, debt costs. So I think these are areas that we're really trying to stay away from. Um, uh, you know, and so rather than looking at it by sector or by geography, we're looking for attributes that we really don't want at this point in time, and and, and ruling businesses out. Um, you know, but based on that, and and also businesses that are very cyclical, right? Because they're exposed to the to the economy. So anything that's heavily cyclical, um, where if economic growth goes down, these go go down even further. Um, again, we're trying to stay away from them. Really looking for businesses that are, uh, I guess, stickier or more resilient. Mm. Yeah, but definitely, like what you mentioned, like Europe, we have lower exposure. The US, we have a lot of exposure. Japan, we have a very very low level of exposure because the ROEs are very low. Um, overall, Europe, we are very cautious. I think European recession is something that the market's basically thinking is quite certain for next year. Um, and consumer weakness globally is something that people think is pretty much given. So they're definitely things that we think. Therefore, I think what do you go to, as Marie mentioned, something unique, but also things that there's a high element of trust. So if it's in engineering or healthcare or privacy or finance, if there's an element of trust um, and respect and aspiration, like whatever happens in geopolitics or the market or inflation, those things are still going to need to be there, right? They don't move. Human desire for trust and respect and aspiration still exist in our heads um and it's still a, a desire and especially if you need a product like insurance um or engineering or healthcare, 
the trust element is something that takes decades to build and it can't be manufactured or it can't be competed away. It, it takes many, many decades. Um, so for us, that's kind of where we've gone to. So most of the top 10, they either produce something that's quite unique um, or they've got a business where there's an element of trust, whether it's a small component in a big process, um, a small share of wallet in a big process or something that's aspirational. Um, so I think if you think about sort of where you don't want to go, it almost tells you where you do want to go. Um, so I think that that's sort of the you know there's there's two sides to it, and I think that's that's sort of where we've gone to um, because there's so much that I guess yeah there's a lot that you don't want to own in this market um, and in this environment that is very you know, very very pressuring for companies. Um, so therefore yeah the ones that you want to own it's probably a smaller opportunity set than the normal over the next twelve months. Um, and but if those can can hold their own um, then it's you know really exciting to own those stocks. Well, speaking of where you do want to go and where you don't want to go, uh, I think to close out the episode, it would be great to hear where you both are going. And <laughs> if you could perhaps provide one company each that is a good demonstration of everything that we've kind of discussed today uh, in terms of your investing universe and, and the companies that are really exciting you at the moment. So, um, Maroon, maybe maybe we start with you. If, if there's one company that, uh, yeah, you could... Uh, let us know. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll, one company I'll, I'll sort of put forward today is called Arista, Arista Networks. They make um, network switches, which for those that don't know, if you have like different you know, devices connected in a network. So let's say you're at work and you know, everyone's got different sort of computers and they're all connected at work and they can all sort of share files and work on similar files. In the back end, there's a piece of hardware called network switches where they're all sort of plugged into that, and that sort of facilitates the transfer of data from one computer to another within the network. Um, they're a leader in that. They uh, there's you know two other big players in there, Cisco and Juniper, um, along with Arista. Um, where Arista is growing quite a lot in is in the cloud space. If you sort of think about data centers where all the clouds are hosted, there's lots of different devices sort of talking to each other there. Um, Arista's two biggest customers are Facebook and Microsoft. Um, you know, so Microsoft has got Azure. So, you know, you can sort of use Azure as like a competitor to um, Amazon's AWS. So you could sort of host all of your, if you're a small SME, you can host all of your um, network on the cloud. You can use someone like, um, you know, a Microsoft. Facebook, obviously, are hosting all of their content right all the videos all the photos um they they, they they sort of need to host that on on their cloud they don't really offer it as a as a third-party solution but they're the two biggest customers um obviously cloud is is growing um you know strongly and will sort of continue to grow so the industry itself is has got that nice um growth tailwind behind it arista i think has increased its revenues uh 15 fold um over the last decade um uh, so it's you know it's, it's 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 grown um like a weed we we continue to expect that it should be able to grow um you know low double digit growth rates um you know for the next few years going forward generate really good margins really good returns sort of north of 20% um, return on equity, generates uh, free cash, and they they use that to sort of fund buybacks. Um, and the management team is is um, well, well regarded. So the co-founder of um, Arista, he co-founded a company called Sun Microsystems, which was bought out by Oracle many years ago for a few billion dollars. He co-founded a company called um, Granite uh, Systems, which was bought out by Cisco. Um, he was one of the first investors in Google. He actually gave the, the Google... Uh, founders um, Larry Page and Sergey uh, Brin a hundred thousand dollar check himself personally 
and was one of the first investors in that. So he's 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 got this legendary status within Silicon Valley. <laughs> Um, the CEO, uh, you know, similar thing. She, she, she's had a decorated career at AMD, at Fairchild. She was at Cisco um, and she's been there for 15 years. So uh, they have a very well-regarded uh, management team. So I think it sort of ticks all those boxes. Long-term quality compounder does really well, dominates its segment. Uh, you know, it's, it's growing nicely, good margins. So there's nothing not to like about Arista. Yeah, I, I've just... I- I just Googled the company while you were talking about it. It's up 30% this year, which is rare to see. Company up in the in the past 12 months. Um, for people playing along at home, uh, trading in New York, stock ticker ANET. Uh, remember to do your own research um, and, you know, make your own investment decisions. But fascinating company I hadn't heard of um, and one that I'll definitely do more research on. So, uh, James, Maroon has set the bar pretty high there. Uh, do, you, <laughs> do, you have a, uh, do you have a company that comes to mind? Yes, it's a little bit uh, – look, it's very stable as well and really um, fascinating. The big thing is a long-term quality compounder like Arista, a very obviously different world, but it's in insurance, one that we've spoken about on, the, on this episode. Um, it's Arthur J. Gallagher, code AJGUS. It is an insurance business, provides insurance, broking, consulting, um, third-party settlement claims and admin to basically a lot of companies all around the world. Um, it's also very ethical. Like this is one of the top 100 most ethical companies in the world. Um, it's a real sort of one of these be- what we call a beautiful compounder, has really strong returns, strong sustainability, really strong processes, market structures. It's like admired and respected as one of the in- insurance companies in the world. Credibility is also very high, as I mentioned, in terms of the accounts and management. And as I said, have voted one of the top 100 most ethical companies in the world, the most desirable places sort of to work. So yeah, Arthur J. Gallagher is one and we've spoke about insurance. I was the financials analyst for Australia in the in the great the financial crisis in 09 and um, and during that period worked out that insurance companies make three margins. One is the insurance margins, one is return on shareholders funds and one is return on, on what's called tech tech reserves. And when you're making the triple benefit of that upswing in terms of the upcycle in insurance, these stocks are really, really good places to be. The the capital I guess is being sort of removed out of the system in terms of capital liquidity. So hedge funds, um, a lot of them are removing capital out of the insurance system that when you've got rising, uh, declining rates or cheap money, a lot of capital goes into the insurance industry. But now the price of risk and the price of capital and the attitude towards risk is definitely becoming a lot harder. And that, that that's why the insurance industry is going through that hardening cycle. But the benefit of rising rates is they get the yeah, better return on shareholders funds, better return on tech reserves. This business is, is a distributor um, of insurance as well. So you're getting all of these sort of positive tailwinds that you're getting from the industry perspective as well. So yeah, we, we like it. It's in our top 10, but it's in a, in a great part of the cycle, a great long-term compounder. Maroon and James, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure chatting this afternoon. We, we can't uh, leave the call though without letting everyone know the exciting news that you will both be appearing live in person at FinFest here in Sydney on October the 15th, sharing all your wisdom on all things future leaders. So we're excited. We're actually um, facilitating that conversation. Oh, so that's when you convince these guys that you're a yes, global future leader. Yes, that's a 25-minute pitch session from yeah. me. <laughs> so on the main stage, stake main stage, um, which we're really pumped about, 
mid-afternoon, I think, so everyone's going to be nice and lubricated. It's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, if you haven't got your tickets and you'd like to uh, come and meet James and Maroon in person and have a chat to them and get to uh, many stock tips from them off record, then uh, <laughs> you know the place, equitymates.com slash finfest. But, gents, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. We always take so much information from um, from you in these conversations and I'm sure the Equity Mates community have as well. And uh, we look forward to catching up with you in a couple of weeks' time. Great. Thank Sounds you very much. Good. We're super yeah. excited for that and thanks yeah. for having us again, guys. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. We, we should also say that if you can't wait until the 15th of October to hear more from James and Maroon, uh, go to fidelity.com.au. Uh, it's more information on their fund and uh, more information that they've written as well. Nice. Well played, Plenty Brent. of James and Maroon content. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys. All right, cool. Great. Thanks. Thank thanks. you. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.